Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 27, 2010, and my guest is Robert Laughlin, the Ann T. and Robert M. Bass Professor of Physics and the 1998 co-recipient of the Nobel Prize in Physics. Bob, welcome to EconTalk. My pleasure. Now, you, you recently wrote an article in the American Scholar uh, called What the Earth Knows, which is an interesting title, but the cover of the issue had a more provocative title, The Earth Doesn't Care If You Drive a Hybrid. Uh, that could be very dispiriting to some people, and it could be very encouraging to others. What was your argument? The argument was that the well, scales of the Earth are so long that all it cares about is whether you burn up all the coal and oil. It doesn't care whether you take 200 years to do it or 300 years to do it. So if you're concerned about the Earth instead of yourself, you would have to bring your carbon consumption down to zero on the scale of people. Now, whether that's likely to happen is another conversation. But anyway, that's the answer to your question. So uh, should we worry about climate change based on your argument? What was the, what was the thrust on that dimension? Um, obviously, you should worry about climate change. Some. Uh, it's one of the many things you have to worry about, of course, like keeping your job and making sure that your kids are okay and making sure you've got enough money in bank for education and so forth. Sure. Um, the rather uh, provocative title and the subtitles of that uh, piece were imposed by the editor of The <laughs> Scholar, who saw an opportunity and, and took it. The original title of that piece was Geologic Time. And it's a chapter excerpt from a book I've written called, provisionally, When Coal is Gone. The premise of this book is that you go in your mind to a time about 200 years from now or so when nobody burns carbon out of the ground anymore, either because they banned it or because it's all gone. Or it's inaccessible economically? Yeah, it's the same thing. Is that what you mean by all gone? Same thing, all gone. It just costs too much gas. Okay. So it's exhausted, it's functionally exhausted. Then you ask, what happened? So, for example, you could ask... Are there still soccer moms? Mm-hmm. Do people still drive cars? Do people still drive airplanes? Do the lights turn on? Is there enough food to eat? So those are very concrete, what I like to call engineering questions. Very concrete, specific engineering questions that you can ask. Interestingly, when I uh, put lay the whole, whole premise out in front of students, they usually... Uh, come down on the conservative side, even people who are very, very concerned about climate. So I ask, will people drive cars? And they say, sure. Then I ask, why? Or how? Well, you get to the how later. Okay. okay? The the how, of course, is the next question. But they say, they beat around the bush a little bit. And they say, well, because you need them. It's because you need to transport food. And then about the fifth or sixth person who raises their hands gets it. They said, because people want them. 
Then I say, yes, yes, it's because people want them. If you go to anywhere in the third world and, 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 and go in a taxi and have a conversation with a taxi driver, it's always the same conversation. Okay? What he cares about is cheap gas. And he doesn't get paid enough, and he needs more money for the kids, yep. and wants a better house, and so forth. It's always the same. Any, any country you pick. Do you have to go to the third world for that? I think you can get that here. Well, the point <laughs> is, most people in the States are very parochial and inward-looking, and yep. they don't understand that all those other people are just like them. Yeah, it's strange. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so they, so they get it, and then we start down the road. Well, you know, if you're going to have cars, well, how are you going to power them? Well, then we talk about talk about the technical means and then we ask well you know what's likely to be the pricing of these technical means and what are the fundamental limits on the on the various kinds of fuels you might have and so forth and the ones that are technical trains get it right away they they get they get it very fast that that hydrocarbons which we burn today have the greatest energy density possible of all fuels we're talking so, about coal and well, we're talking gas, about coal, but that's right. Things that have carbon in them, and the the the. Um, so, for example, if we get to the next question, which is airplanes, will people fly airplanes? That's a little harder, but usually people say in the end yes for the same reasons, and then I then I and then I get them. I say, well, how are you going to make the airplanes fly? Yeah. Okay. Well, pedaling really bat- quickly. Battery, right? Then batteries. Well, batteries are pretty heavy. Well, then the ones I said the ones that have technical it go click click click. It goes in there. Oh. You can't have airplanes unless you have hydrocarbon fuels. Uh, I say hydrocarbon. You could, you could, in theory, do it with hydrogen or something, but hydrogen is highly dangerous and it's an obnoxious fuel. The carbon in those fuels remediates the design flaws of the hydrogen, so it's a mix of them. So, but, but quantum mechanically, which is the way we, in the sense of chemistry, we know that the energy content of those fuels is optimal. There will never be any anything that beats them and there's the additional factor that for all the bad rap that carbon has it's the only industrial pollutant that isn't poisonous right okay? in fact plants need it to grow I mean they, they just remediate it so so in fact you can very easily figure working backwards from the problem that we will never go into a post carbon era that is to say even when the coal and oil are gone Human beings will still use carbon-based fuels, even if they have to make them. And that's a very excellent uh, starting point for th- working backwards now for the, for the climate issue, because one of the shibboleths is now knocked out, which is that carbon is bad. That's gone. Why? Carbon, well, because carbon is with us forever. Well, I, let, let's stop there. I want to come back to the future in a minute. Right. Let, let's, I want you to lay out the, the arguments you make in, in the American Scholar article about the role that geologic time plays in helping you think about this and why you're more sanguine about the consequences, I think, than most uh, worried people are. So, so give us the argument for uh, why, say, a thousand years of ex- excessive carbon in the atmosphere, global warming, is nothing to be deeply worried about. Because that's, I think, the way you frame it in the article. Well, it, it isn't exactly. Okay, so okay. Uh, they, that's the that's the uh, rather conservative spin that the editor put on the titles. The first piece of the answer to your question is that the Earth is extraordinarily old. Uh, the 
measure that I used to bring it into perspective was rainfall. So I point out the amount of rain that typically falls, let's say in New York City, is about a meter. The amount of rain that's fallen since the Industrial Revolution began is about 200 meters, the size of Hoover Dam. The amount of rain that's fallen since the time of Moses is enough to fill up all the oceans. The amount of rain that's fallen since the Ice Ages ended is enough to fill up the oceans four times. The amount that has fallen since the dinosaurs died is, if I remember my number correctly... It's 100. No, no, it's 12,000. It's, it's enough to fill up the oceans 12,000 times or the Earth once. Oh, yeah, they're here. Uh, uh, 20,000. 20,000. Well, it's even worse than I said. Okay, 20,000. No, I checked those numbers. So that's <laughs> now, the, the point is that you can get a fee. You know, you know, because you experience rain, how long it takes to accumulate an entire meter of rain. That's about the size of a dog. Okay? So we're talking about filling up all of the oceans 20,000 times. That's a long time. Not just since the dinosaurs. And that's just in the dinosaurs. When we go back to the Paleozoic and so forth, it's even more. And the, uh, as far as we know, based on radio dating, the Earth is a good fraction of the age of the universe old. Now, what that means is that the, uh, the time scale of people, which is, of course, important to me, is irrelevant to the Earth itself. That means, if you're going to think scientifically about the problem, you must separate the issues of the Earth from the issues of people, because there are different time scales. I care a lot about whether it, it uh, well, I don't, don't, we don't have food uh, in one generation. Uh, that, that's sort of on my plate. You might care a lot about being able to see the other side of the Grand Canyon for the next 50 or 60 Excellent. or hundreds of years. Beautiful, beautiful example. For right? your children, grandchildren. Yeah, but this is an issue for me, not an issue of the Earth. All of the events of carbon will play out in about two centuries from now. And that is a flash of geologic time. A millisecond. M much, much yeah. less than that. Okay? So the Earth will go on, and in fact... Once you've got that far in your reasoning, you understand that the human life, human, human species and the way we live and so forth, is part of the Earth. So civilization isn't going to stop in 200 years either. It's going to go on and on and on. Well, in some form. Now, it might not, it might not be such a nice transition to this long-term long situation, but you can predict with immense confidence that that there will be people around after the crises are all through. And um, for a lot longer than the duration of the crisis itself, where human civilization is already, let's say, 5,000 years old, and uh, the future spreading out before us is vastly longer than that. But we care more than just about the Earth rotating or going around the sun, right? So we care about the quality of life on Earth. So you make some interesting observations about, I think one of the things people worry a lot about is, true, we might be here, true, uh, the Earth will still be here. Uh, it is Im Im impervious to, to humanity, certainly, and it's from space, mm -hmm. some dimension from space. Uh, Although but, it looks pretty neat seeing all those lights down there. Yes, it is. And it's also very blue. People like that. Mm -hmm. uh, a hotter world, some people worry, will have you know, less life on it, perhaps, and, and that would be a very bleak Earth. So while 
the Earth might persist, aren't we worried about what will happen on the Earth in our lifetimes and the next few generations? The answer to that is, is certainly yes. You're, it is climate. Now, now, at this point, let's make clear now, we've, we've now digressed onto the subject of climate, which in my book is assiduously avoided. Okay. I basically want to defer to the IPCC. If you want advice about what to do with your economy or what laws to write, go to them. Okay. That's the international panel of or whoever. Change, you know, yeah. you go to climate people. I uh, do not want to get into a to a conflict with those guys. What I want to do is a, be a problem solver. So we're going to skip over all that stuff. But what about the, the life's gone? We can't. We're going to. Well, I've just explained now. The life won't all be gone. That's nonsense. Um, now, why is it nonsense? Well, you know, when you have these very grand futuristic um, questions, it's it's they're so hard to visualize that it's it, it, it's it's well, it's it's difficult to do at first, but actually, it's not difficult. And the logic is actually very simple. The lever arm of what people are doing to the Earth now is much smaller than what has happened to the Earth in the past for reasons we don't know. Now, we're talking, just to put this in perspective, we're talking about maybe raising the uh, sea levels by a meter. Now, there is no evidence yet for any elevation of the sea levels, but let's say for the sake of discussion that the worst-case scenarios are right. The seas go up by a meter. Well, 10,000 years ago, let's say 20 to be safe, the sea level was 130 meters lower than it is today. And the reason for that is that all that water was locked up in ice over Scandinavia and Canada. Moreover, this is not science fiction. There are beautiful measurements done with, with carbon-14 uh, in, uh, in the muds at the bottom of the ocean that tell you exactly how much... Uh, water was locked up in the ice caps. I checked all those numbers. They're, they're very, very beautiful experiments. So you really know. You really know how much water was. Well, that's an effect on the sea levels that is 100 times bigger than the one you're contemplating as your worst-case scenario. So um, something happened back about three million years ago that started this Paleozo, uh, this Pleistocene ice cycles. Nobody knows what that is, but it was a gigantic climate effect. Now, if you go even farther back uh, in the geologic record, you find um, evidence, it's a little fuzzier because it's farther back, but evidence of very warm periods. So current thinking, for example, is the middle of the Jurassic was a very warm period. The Earth was kind of jungly. And the pole, there were there were there was life at, at the poles, uh, as well as at the equator. Uh, there are theories for why that was, uh, but the thing to keep in mind about about that sort of time, way back in the dinosaur time, is that the record is uh, is much deeper, and so that means the errors in interpreting it are are maybe a little bigger. Sure. But the Pleistocene is just crystal clear, crystal clear. So why did that icing happen? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And was it a was it a, a instability of the oceans, or did the sun get dim, or 
was there oh, some panic. something yeah. well there strikes. are a long list of things that you can think of and uh, there are good reasons for disbelieving all of them uh -huh. okay so not necessarily the right reasons I mean one of them might be right but, know, yeah. but we, we just don't know so but what you do know is that something happened that people didn't cause and the reason you know that is there weren't enough people on the earth at the time to do anything and at the beginning of the Pleistocene there weren't any people on the earth at, at all. all yeah so the, the bottom line is the Earth's had a lot of climate swings in its existence. In its history. Right. In its history. During that time, there was life of various kinds. It seems to be a fairly resilient uh, system overall. And it's, it seems to be uh, pretty resilient, yes. Uh, of course, it's, it's um, history. You know, the history belongs to the victors, right? So the, the animals that, and plants that won and didn't become extinct course they crow and they say well great you know, system a great system life goes on <laughs> the ones that didn't make it well maybe you know they they didn't like so it if so. a meteor uh, the uh, 10 kilometers wide hits the earth uh, a long time ago and darkens the skies for a long time it could make life tough for the larger creatures so some people suggest that's why the dinosaurs aren't here anymore right and that I was saw, an unpleasant event for them. i saw that movie yes and if it happened today that would be a pretty unpleasant event right right so, um, so one thing you know for sure is that life, by its nature, the way life is built generally, is that it's adaptable. Now, people, you might ask, well, could people adapt to this, uh, to this warming? Well, of course, you don't know until it happens. But don't forget, humans are the most adaptable form of life that has ever existed on Earth. Okay? They live in the pole. They live in the poles. They live with the penguins. They live, they live in the jungles. They live in the Great Plains. They live in Chicago, for God's sake. Yeah, Philadelphia. <laughs> well, okay, so the yeah. point is that, that, that people are... are um, L.A. L.A. is yeah, the worst. We're sitting in the Bay Area, so I, I think L.A. Exactly. is the right Well, I don't know. If I were going to say what's the toughest place, I'd say Chicago. But okay. <laughs> let's say, let's say um, uh, people are very adaptable, and so the good money says that humans will do pretty well. Now, the other species around might have a little tougher time of it. You've got the, you've got the temperature moving around. That's a little bit harder to predict. They've done it before. Okay, they've done it numerous times before. There's a famous case that geologists like to talk about, which is Oregon. In the Oligocene, which is a little after the dinosaurs died, um, Western or, or Eastern Oregon was wet. And the reason you know is you find all these redwood, redwood debris. In, in it. And um, so it had redwood forests like the coasts do. Uh, but then the Cascade Ranges came up and made a rain shadow, and they, they are no more. So what did those plants do? Well, the ones that were growing in that particular area died, yeah. and the ones that were growing in other areas didn't die. They're, they're better. They migrated better a little bit, the best they could. Well, the way plants migrate yeah. is the ones Wind. in the bad place die, <laughs> and the ones in the, in the new place uh, don't. Um, so uh, the other species, anyway, might have a, a tough time of it. And you're, of course, aware that uh, 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 zoologists Basically, basically, people who worry about um, enumerating the, uh, the life on the Earth are very, very worried about human impact on other species, species diversification loss, diversity loss. And um, that's a little hard to measure, but it's highly believable 
that human population pressure is doing, uh, doing a number on the species count of the Earth. Um, so I don't, as I say, my, my own personal guess is that that's true and that if we're going to worry about anything right now, that's it. Biodiversity due to population pressure on habitat. Well, there's resources. a lot of things you do. For example, you, you th people are worried about the Amazon jungle going on. Well, why? Because they're farming it. Okay? They're cutting down yeah. all the trees just like the Europeans did when they came to America and yeah. they chopped all down all the trees in the river bottoms in the Middle West. So, um, uh, and that's, and the, so the trees are gone, and they're using insecticides, and they're building homesteads, and, um, and this is not so good for jaguars and parrots. Yep. Okay. Um, so, uh, that is an issue of geologic time. So, you're worried about the arc of the Earth. Sure. The, the four degrees, uh, well, let's, let's, let's not be too precise. Let's say the amount of heating that we're talking about to, to carbon profligacy, to me, is a much less severe difficulty than the speciation problem because this, losing the species is forever. Now, before we go on, which I want to get back to our beyond uh, the coal work, carbon world, but most, a lot of folks are a lot more worried about the impact of that whatever number of degrees it is on the adaptability of species and, and the biodiversity issue. Why do you think that is? Are, are you, you're, I think you're saying, well, they're reflexible. It's a relatively small amount of, of forecasted. Uh, we don't, of course, have very accurate forecasts, but it's a small amount of variation relative to the historic record. Most people don't feel that way. They're very concerned about it. What do you think their argument is? Do you know? Have they argued with you? Sometimes. Um, but the answer to your question, I think, is that it's a powerful metaphor. Yes, it is. For yourself. The uh, integrity of the earth um, is at least in part a religious principle, and it's, it's certainly built into Western religions. Um, I, I know about them. Eastern religions is a little a little more complicated, although it appears to be built into those too. And so worrying about the earth, the, the leaving the place, leaving your campsite the way you found it, yep. okay, is, um, it strikes chords in people that yeah. have nothing to do with logic or science or any of that stuff. It's, it's, um, it's deeply in us. It, it, that's right, it's deeply in us. And, and uh, it, it's, not, it's not wrong either. Um, certainly when I go camping, that's what I do, yeah. right? You can't tell I was there, and that's the ethic. And when I die, I want my ashes to go right in the ocean where they'll do some good so I don't clutter up the ground with a lot of, lot of mess. Um, <clears throat> anyway, um, so that's, that's the reason. Because when people are talking about the, the earth, they're not actually talking about the science of the earth. They're talking about the metaphor. Of of not harming things, yeah, and and that's um, that's uh, you know it's very understandable. Now, the the um, the reality, as you know, is that humans harm things. We our mere presence harms things, and so real life is a balance. Between minimum between the harm you do on the one hand and and the need to do a little bit of harm in order to, to live, so uh, in fact this this um, absolutist position is not 
is not completely correct. It's a it's part, it's it's one end of a spectrum. There are trade-offs. You're suggesting that the magnitude of the trade-off is relatively right. Fine. Right. So the easiest way not to not to besmirch your campsite is to not go camping. Yes. Okay. But of course, I like to go camping, so so I I do. So the compromise I strike is I go and I use the resource a little bit, but then I put it back as best you can. Put it back. Right. Now um, the boundary condition or the fact of, of fossil fuel use is, is that it's a historic accident. It comes to us from Europe. First of all, it's an accident that that stuff is in the ground in the first place, but also um, it's an accident that our pro present day prosperity is built upon it. So you cannot simply wave a magic wand and stop that that use of the of the resources without causing mass death, uh, either through starvation or just plain war over the remaining resources. This is serious, serious stuff. So the transition that's coming in the next century or two has to do with retooling something very fundamental. It's like you bought a car and the car has worked for years for you and then you discover it needs a uh, it, it needs um, new pistons. Okay, well that's an expensive job, and you really don't want to replace the pistons, you know, because you're going to have to have it reboard, and it's going to cost an enormous amount of money. And then Could when you wrong. get done, the, the car's going to run just the same as it did before. So you put it off. Okay, but you can't put it off forever because eventually it won't work anymore. So then you have to then you have to go and fix it. It's kind of like Medicare. <laughs> Today, well, working, maybe working pretty well. It seems like if you're in the hospital, but. maybe maybe um, the the fu the funding algorithm for medicine has some very profound problems with it that that are fundamental. And yet, eventually, yeah, you can go for a while, but eventually, it won't work anymore. Um, and you don't want to deal with it. Be like the next guy to yeah. deal with it. Now. Okay. Sweet. So so uh, it's like that. And the, re the since it's so fundamental, the retooling will be very unpleasant. There'll be uh, a lot of economic stability that happens when it occurs and um, one of your one of the things you, you've got to worry about I think is managing that. So let's, let's be very precise. So let's suppose for just for the sake of discussion that you uh, don't do anything and uh, then we wait for the oil crisis to come. Now, everybody is always predicting there's going to be an oil crisis, but actually this time uh, you sort of know. And the reason you do um, is because the um, Energy Information Agency has revealed that the amount of new strikes of oil, big as it is, including the big Brazil ones, is not enough to offset the declines in U.S. production. If you remember your history, U.S. used to be an oil exporting country, yep. and it's blessed with huge oil reserves. Well, um, the new the new sources are not enough to uh, counteract that. So the draw on the Middle Eastern reserves is going up. Correct. And so that means you can calculate when the crunch time is just with the Middle East resources alone. You just you just calculate how fast they're going down, and when it hits zero, then you're going to get a price price instability. Well, I find that a bit mysterious for the following reason. Maybe I'm uh, you'll correct me. Uh, and I have to mention on my way into uh, 
running an errand this morning, I, I heard on um, KFOG, local mm-hmm. radio station, a caller reprimanding the one of the disc jockeys for um, thinking that a wind turbine in your front yard would be ugly and might offend your neighbor. And they were very quick to say, oh, no, no, yeah, no, it would be beautiful. It would be beautiful to have a wind turbine in your front yard because it would be sustainable. Of course, I'm not sure what a wind turbine in your front yard could sustain at current technology of wind turbines. But uh, isn't it possible that as the amount of carbon diminishes, and of course, the amount of known reserves has risen for a long, long time. So in 1970, when scientists were forecasting the uh, end of, of carbon by 2000, when 2000 came along, even though we had used a lot more uh, carbon between 70 and 2000, we'd found so much more, whatever that means. It's, of course, a hard thing to measure. But isn't it po- so, But eventually, the Earth is a finite place. Isn't it possible that our effectiveness in using the amount of carbon will rise, as it has, right? We're more energy efficient than we were 50 years ago. Uh, the amount of GDP we can get per BTU has gone up dramatically. Isn't it possible that we'll find ways to power our electricity, our cars, and our planes so that a gallon of gasoline goes much, much farther than, than it did before and reduce that pressure you're talking about on, say, the Middle East oil fields? Do we have any idea about what, what that you're asking me is a speculation about what will happen technically in the future and what supplies will do in the future. Well, uh, the best answer I can give you is I looked at this question very, very carefully when I was writing this book. And it wasn't easy because the, because the oil industry is vast and those guys know much more than I do. And it's very hard to assess what's true and what's not. Yeah. My best guess uh, as to the true situation is that the Middle East reserve problem is real. That is to say, the Middle East is not a major, the major source of imported oil in the U.S. Our major source right now is Canada. Yeah. Uh, also, the reserve numbers are way off, at least the BP ones that I know of, because they didn't include the oil sands of Venezuela, which are vast. So they're off in the sense that they're understated. They understate the true reserves. They way understated them. Um, Aren't there sand f- shale fields somewhere else too besides Venezuela? There are there are the other the, there are other um, sources around, but the really big one that's that helped you know, you can really concrete say that, that there's a problem with the numbers is the Venezuelan resources. It's a cheerful thought. Well, yeah, I love Venezuela. Great well, um, it's that's and that's a whole conversation in itself. You know what's yeah, happening in Venezuela right now? It's fascinating. Uh, the Middle East reserves um, are, in fact, being drawn down more. And so something will happen when it hits zero. It, it might not be the end of oil, but it's, it's a good guess that there will be price fluctuations like crazy when that happens. And the, there will be something economically that occurs at that point. And that point is roughly 60 years out. Uh, so uh, now, at current drawdown rates, so you might ask, well, maybe some improvement in technology would reduce the drawdown rate. 
All I can tell you is that it's gone up. Okay, it's gone. It's gone up monotonically. China's grown. India's grown. Well, that's the U.S. has grown. That's the big effect. Obviously, the Chinese don't have any oil. The USA has lots of oil. China doesn't have much. Uh, so, the, from their perspective, it's a completely different calculus. You know, they've got to worry about um, worry about have adequate fuel supplies for an economy that's growing madly. Yeah. Right now, uh, and the same goes for the Indians. Actually, the Chinese are growing faster, but they both have gigantic populations. And if you know, if you know human nature, every one of those people is going to want a car. They all want a car. Absolutely. So um, yeah, so I think uh, the um, and then you asked about the technical technical constraints. Uh, my guess is no. You can get uh, more bang for the buck for fuel, but the economics of fuel use precludes it, because fuel is so cheap that it doesn't pay to conserve it. And as long as that's the case, um, the um, the technologies that might get another twenty percent out of the out of the fuel um, uh, don't aren't aren't relevant. But as the sixty years pass. Or maybe it's a hundred, maybe it's forty. We don't know. But as those years pass, and we get closer to zero, and, or economic zero, as the carbon-based fuel gets scarcer, its price will rise, and those technologies that are not economic today will become exactly and viable. Uh, apropos of that, uh, I made a prediction. So, yes. by the way, I just want to say, I don't think it's necessarily that prices will fluctuate wildly. I think they'll grow steadily. It's a question of the, the speed. The, and the, the, the people I know on Wall Street, basically ex-students, are all thinking that the first sign of the oil scarcity isn't, isn't price going up crazy. It's price fluctuating like crazy. Yeah, why? Well, because, the, because of the, I presume, that the, the, there's a buyer response. Uh, it's like the business cycle. Okay, well, people want to buy when it's cheap, and when the price goes up, they don't buy, and then there's a crash and so forth. The uh, oil supply is very inelastic. Uh, when you know, well, you know what happened? We had we had a recession, and the, it, it tanked. Price yeah. of oil tanked, even though it's absolutely essential to life. The reason is there was a giant amount of supply and no demand. Anyway, um, I will defer you to economic experts for that. Now, the simple thing. That you can say technically. Which I don't is think true. there are any, but go, keep going. <laughs> well, maybe yeah. there aren't any. Um, a you know, we... they're placing their bets, and it's yeah. their money, and that's, yeah, that's what. Good. That's good. You know, if you've got money, <laughs> and it's your money, and you're placing the bets, uh, that makes I'm, you an expert. As I'm, far as I'm, I'm with concerned. you there. <laughs> well, the technologies uh, to replace oil, basically to make gasoline from other things, already exist. It's not that you need to do fundamental research to figure them out. They've existed for a long time. They actually, they, they, the main pieces of them were invented before World War II. The Nazi government actually made made uh, made gasoline, not very much, but they made it because um, they had lost access to their oil supply. Well, at some point this in the is war. all World War II history. The Germany has has had and always and still does have an oil problem. You know, they don't have oil supplies. Um, at any rate, um, you ask, you know, why don't you make your oil, make your gasoline right now and stop using foreign oil? Well, the answer is obvious. It's too, too expensive. expensive. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> so what you expect to happen is a price crossing. Mm -hmm. Okay? Sure. Now, right now, the prices don't cross. Why? 
because it's the cheap. people who well, it's more than that. It's basic economic. Now, this is a theory I'm telling you, but I'm pretty sure it's right. The energy business is cutthroat. That's the key thing to understand. The reason gasoline is is cheap, relatively speaking, is because all those companies are basically trying to kill each other. Well, it's a okay? beautiful thing. It's it is a beautiful thing. So it's yeah. actually right. So the, the the their nightmare is that synthetic fuel plants get built. Because once they do, the feedstocks to them are cheap. See, the, the entry barrier to making synthetic fuel is the plant. It's the capital cost. So you don't want your competitors building those plants. How do you defend against that? Low prices. Yeah, this, is, this is classic J.D. Rockefeller thinking. Okay? I'm not sure it's true, but, but it's a, that is the one view. Um, I'm not the, sure it's a strategic plan on the part of these folks. Rather, just maybe this is... The, Think that they think the best thing well, to do, but me, either way, let me come back to that because there's a there's a thing I discovered when I was writing this book that is a, just a gorgeous gorgeous case of this problem. But at any rate, the um, the plants in question, um, not only can you make them, they're already built. Now, the synthetic how, fuel. Well, plants. let's say that that the first of all the Germans did it, but there have been improved versions. The South Africans. Um, Built built one a famous synthetic fuel company called Sasol that makes synthetic diesel fuel and still makes it. It's it's boutique diesel fuel and it's expensive. But when I was in uh, Northeast Asia, uh, I learned that the, that the numerous Korean companies had quietly been building pilot plants near Chinese coal mines. Why? Because they want to learn how to do it, so they're ready. They're just waiting for the prices to cross, and when they do, bang, they'll be there. Now, um, the, the um, environmental argument for not subsidizing building of the plants is that the carbon footprint's double. Carbon footprint is bigger. Of a, of a synthetic. Correct. And the reason why, carbon footprint is bigger, so people, the, the greens, don't like it. Okay. Why is the footprint bigger? Well, it's very simple. The... the the, to make gasoline out of coal, you need hydrogen. And the way you get the hydrogen is from water, and getting hydrogen out of water costs energy. So basically, you have to burn some of the coal to get the energy to make the hydrogen. And then you burn other parts of the coal to get the carbon that goes in. And so basically, the carbon consumption has doubled. Mm -hmm. yeah. Aren't we going to run out of coal, though? Let me get to that. Okay. okay. The... the, the um, uh, uh, the I, my own guess is a price crossing, and the reason is that uh, uh, I don't think governments anywhere have the willpower to do what it takes to to get the, get the prices to adjust artificially. Now, m maybe they don't even have the means. Maybe it's physically impossible for them to do. That could be also. But certainly we've had numerous, numerous cases, both in this country and the Europe, where governments have tried to modify the carbon, sure. the, the fuel prices by taxes, and when they, when they get a little bit too high, the truckers go on strike. Yep. Okay? And that's the end of that. You know? Happened in England. It was very funny. The British government said, we are not giving in to these people. We are not giving in to labor. And then they gave in. Of course, yeah. All right. Now... Um, you asked about running out of coal. Running and, out of coal. And why? Well, the, is that going to happen later? So that'll let us. How are we going to power these synthetic fuel plants without coal-based electricity? The way I think it will come out 
is that there will be first a crossing to coal, followed 150 years later or so by a crossing into other carbon sources from plants. Why? Well, because assuming that the governments don't have power to stop price competition, they can't stop the price crossing either. Right. So the demand for fuel will be voracious, and the energy companies who are providing it will be obligated to get the carbon of the fuel right, from the cheapest source. Anybody who doesn't use the cheapest source will get wiped out of the saddle quickly. Yep. It's like going extinct. Okay? Yep. Happens all the time. Right. And so I think uh, that's probably what's going to happen. Now, obviously, if you, could, if you could pass the right laws, you might forestall, you might just skip that step and go right right to the long-term long one. But my guess is that no government is strong enough to do that. They usually don't pass the right laws anyway, I've noticed in my experience. Oh, there's a whole... They could get close. There's a long <laughs> list of reasons why, why you think that might happen. But, but the... Um, anyway, I'm trying to answer your question. Yeah. So the first price crossing is coal simply because it's cheapest. And then what about the second one? Well, when the coal runs out, um, you've got... You know, you've got to get... Got to have carbon fuels because airplanes won't fly without them. And why do you need carbon? Well, as I said, because it, it's a it's so good. So you have to get it. Well, where is it? It's all in the air. So you have to get it from the air. Well, you can do that with a with a factory, or you can do it with plants. My money says it will happen with plants because they're so great. Right. Basically, they've been honing their skills for 600 million years, and they really know how to do it. They're good at it. So they, they're just tailor-made to take carbon out of the air for you, and all you do is add water and sunlight. Okay. So I, I don't think um, we're li it's likely to turn to a, a, a artificial carbon sources. I think probably a new a new uh, branch of agriculture will spring up at that time to, to basically to provide the feedstock that coal used to provide. And the beauty of the history is the capital costs will already have been made. Capital expenditures will already be In other words, the plant that makes fuel out of coal is the same as the plant that plant makes it out of... meaning the factory. Yes, yeah. the factory. is the same as the factory that makes it out of grass clippings. It's exactly the same. It's, it's, everything's the same. So the, once, once, the, once the plants have been built, once the factories have been built, it's actually fairly easy to switch them over from the, from the fossil carbon source to the non-fossil one. But that would enslave the plants, of course. I, I don't know. I, um, it may alarm some people who, who want the plants to be free. But I, I, it's, an interesting, mm. it's an interesting scenario. Well, um, the, um, it's actually more than a scenario. It's going to happen with 100% certainty, and the reason why is you can't make airplanes fly without carbon, and that's where all the carbon will be, so you have to get it, you have to get it out. Now, um, let's go back to the question you asked now about sort of bigger, which was, well, you know, what about all the carbon coal in the ground running out? Couldn't you, couldn't you just pass laws to stop that? Well, here's where the geologic time matters, you see. If you make cap and trade, and you cut down on your carbon use, your coal use, by 20%, that merely extends by 20% oh, yeah, the no, time it takes to use it up. So uh, that doesn't make any sense. You have to reduce it to zero. Now, the only, the only argument, really, that 
yeah. I think has any water, which doesn't float for me, is it's immoral to use the coal. So we should leave it where God or nature put it, which is under the ground. Uh, and so when people tell me we shouldn't use plastic bags, I always say, well, the plastic bags made out of oil, the oil went under the ground, we'll, we'll put it back under the ground in the form of a plastic bag. It's really not so horrible, but, and I'm usually being facetious there, having a good time. Uh, the immorality of using the coal is, is just fascinating um, because it, you really get some tests about how moral people actually are uh, when, you, when you push them to the wall on this. Now, I have a chapter in this book about the California energy crisis. This book is not out, by the way. We're That's not out yet, but, but no, it will. No, it will no, it's so we're point. in contract, and yeah. you know, and I've got the advances. And but we're, t- we're talking about a, a forthcoming book, which yeah, will at some point be able to order it at Amazon. Right. Um, the the um, see, I lost my train of thought. Morality. Oh yes, yes. The um, push people to the wall. The, the the California energy crisis, of course, is contemporary, but it was so extensively reported that you can see very clearly what happens when people don't get their energy. Okay? They go crazy. Yeah, they don't like it. They chop off the head of the governor, even though the governor was not responsible for the problem. <laughs> okay? They, uh, uh, they do, they basically become irrational. They, uh, so, I, this is apropos of asking the students, well, in this time in the future, will the lights go off? Okay, and they, they sort of think it, it won't, but then I, we talk about this, this history, and they say, boy, it really won't. Namely, it's politically impossible for the lights to go off. People really don't like reading People the really don't like it. In the dark. And when we were in that crisis, no one talked about saving the earth or the ecology <laughs> or the blue sky or anything. They yeah. just said we're having get brown eyes. Get on. my lights back on, exactly. Or my air conditioning if you're living in the hotter parts That's of the That's right. Yeah. So the, the moral argument is fictitious. It is a, it is a, actually, it's a metaphorical argument. In, in real morality, like, like you have in Greek tragedy, there's a choice. And you have to make the choice. And you make, you make a moral choice when you do the tough thing. Well, my experience with most people is they will never do the tough thing when it comes to energy. They're so they unbelievably work and, uh, weak, and this is especially true uh, w- with um, with left-leaning people who haven't thought through the numbers very carefully. Now, I hate to be, I hate to be accusatory that way, but it, it tends to be true that, that I, I say this shocking thing. You know, you know, when you cut down on the coal use, you're burning more natural gas, okay, because that's where the energy comes from. Are you sure you want to do that? It puts carbon in the air, too. Well, it turns out that doesn't compute, see, because the idea that energy is conserved and that you must have it from somewhere doesn't... We'd like to not think about that. Well, it, it's not that you wouldn't like to think about it, it's that you don't. Okay? In other words, it's, it, for most people, it's kind of a tax that you're going to put on someone else, and you'll just order them not to burn coal anymore. And then they will, and everything will be fine. Well, of course, everything won't be fine. What they'll do is they'll burn more natural gas. In fact, I find myself amusing, amusing sometimes that maybe the Russians are secretly behind it because they have so much yeah. natural gas. Oh, when I was in Germany um, last month, uh, that, that conversation was, of course, very shrill because Germany is a big coal-burning country and they've uh, made definitive statements, no nukes, you know, we don't want nuclear power. I talked to the minister of um, 
science and education, and I, she was telling me about how they put caps on coal, and I said, well, doesn't that mean you're going to have to pay the Russians more for natural gas? And she says, that's, yeah, this, that's a problem, and then change the subject. Yeah. Okay? Well, um, you know, uh, the Russians are pretty good business people, you know, they're probably grinning ear to ear, you know, go, go Greens, go. Uh, I feel obligated now to um, go back a minute and tell you a story. Go for it. The uh, apropos of uh, uh, conspiracy theories, uh, there was one that documented in this book that actually came out in the Wall Street Journal, that's where I found it, and it was the summer of 2007, and this was simply wonderful. It had to do with biofuels. At that time, there was in the Congress a law that's now been signed into law uh, called the Energy Independence Act of 2007. And there was a provision in it that the government, which is to say the Air Force, should procure some large fraction of its fuel from non-traditional sources by, I think, 2030. Plenty of time. Well, I, I, I have to be careful about what I say is fact, because this is all from memory. But anyway, some, sometime, the, it was a lot. It was a big fraction, like 20%. And then the Wall Street Journal reporters noticed that, that a, a coalition of greens and big oil put a rider on that clause, which was that uh, the alternate fuel so procured must not put more carbon into the air than petroleum distillates would have. And they thought well, that was enormously amusing, and I got it instantly. Because you see, when you do that, you knock out the coal companies. Okay? Now, I'm pretty sure that there's only one thing in this world that a big oil company is afraid of, and that's a big coal company. Yeah. Because the coal companies can do it. Okay? You want to stop using foil, foreign oil? They can do it. You build the plants? Bang! They got it. Well, so you want to stop those guys, what better way to do it is to get in with your pals, the Greens, and require that you not put more, more carbon in the ground, then, then no government subsidies to build the plants, then no competition for you. Yeah. Long-time listeners will recognize the bootlegger and Baptist coalition here, which uh, we will uh, link to our earlier podcast, the coalition of the high-minded, high-morality uh, Greens with the self-interested um, not so high-minded oil companies. Well, it's not the, the first time. By not the, way. the first time, and people who are very well-meaning basically get taken advantage great. of it by people great, who yeah. are a little more yeah. savvy than they are. That's so true. Let's let's shift gears because I, I want to we're talking about some of your other work and uh, particularly two of your books that are in print. Um, the first is the Crime of Reason, where you argue that the that there's an increasing sequ you call it a, a sequestering of knowledge. That there are areas of the intellectual enterprise that have been put off limits either through legislation or taboo uh, because they are perceived to be dangerous. Uh, and you include in there uh, nuclear, nuclear weapons, uh, biological understanding where people are worrying about the weaponization of, of say, smallpox or other plague, anthrax, etc., cloning, uh, and even intellectual property. Uh, how real do you th think this problem is, and, and why did you why did you write that book? What are you worried about? On the ground, what are you worried about? You're a professor here at Stanford. You get to teach, quote, whatever you want. Not literally, because there are probably you can't, it's not, you'd get in trouble if you taught your students how to make a suitcase nuke, I guess. So yes, that is off. That's, that and knowledge. not from the university either. What? 
not just from the university. Either. Yeah, you'd get you'd, right. It wouldn't just be you'd get a letter from the provost. Um, uh, so it's true that if I'm an inquisitive mind and I'm one of your students, you can't. And I don't know if you know how to make a, a suitcase nuke, but if you did and I wanted to know it, you probably wouldn't tell me. Um, so there are some areas that are off limits. Is that why is it so worrisome? What are you worried about? Because it's a worrisome book. The broad brush answer to this question is that is that I've lived through a deindustrialization experience, which is the offshoring of electronics, microchips to the Far East. In fact, I spent two years in the Far East doing 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 administration in a university, partly in response to this problem. The logic is, well, if that's where the industry went, that's where you go. Okay. Now, um, through thinking about that and relate, things related, what happened to machine tools, what's happening to cars, what's happened to chemical processing, what's happening to oil industry and so forth, they basically manufacturing going overseas. I um, realized that something had happened in the 70s which was very profound and which has long-term implications for our country. It's very insidious, actually. Back in those days, uh, we collectively made a decision that it was okay to send make the process of making things abroad because you were going to be an information society. We, that, that fact that the term information age got coined at that time the idea was, well, you don't need to make things anymore. You live off information, knowledge, basically. So you're going to be the smart people, and you're going to know things. And then you're going to tell the, uh, the, less, the less endowed people overseas how to, how, to, how to make stuff, and then they'll make stuff give for the you at cut, to cut rate. Yeah, you give them the capital, and then you get the stuff, and then you don't actually have to do anything. You just manipulate other people. Now... Um, we roll the camera forward and we have uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is making it illegal to understand things. Now, understand, uh, the word we use is decrypt, but from a computer programmer's point of view, there's no difference between decryption and understanding. They're the same thing. Computer programming to them is language. It's not. It's not. It's not a secret technology. It's a language. It's not a thing. It's a. It's a concept. And um, of course, that that law and the strong uh, increase in the power of the patent laws uh, has been very stressing for a lot of people who are working in in private industry. At least the people who are working at the lower levels, because they they see that their aspirations to get this technical knowledge and to become rich with it. Are blocked by the fact that this knowledge is owned by somebody, and they can't they can't do that. Now you'll see on the internet a uh, lot of talk uh, that's kind of radical about how these people in the Congress don't know what they're doing, and they're in the pocket of big business and so forth. My in passing in allowing more aggressive patenting of exactly. intellectual ideas and yeah, rather than just and gadgets. One of the things I pointed out, I understand this a little better than most people do, and, and what I pointed out in this book is that that's not the situation at all. The situation is, in fact, that the people in the Congress are desperate. 
they're desperate to keep those things, those ways of making your living that still exist in the country, and they're basically pulling every lever they know how to, including making goofy laws, because it's the 11th hour. One by one, you're losing things that uh, people uh, use to make a living. The so you're suggesting that the increased scope of patent laws is a response to the flow of jobs and knowledge overseas. Yes. Okay. I don't agree with you, but go ahead. Let's hear the rest of the argument. Um, why is that? Why are you worried about that? The because um, that was my take on it. Okay. okay. When I saw what had happened and where the where the where the job flow went and so forth. That that was my my understanding of what the DC the, the, the law meant. Okay. Okay. Both both from what I saw and also I read it. And I read it. Um, the um, and the same goes for the patent laws. They they are they are basically the knowledge for the sake of itself um, is not very useful to us. We want things that are owned by us that. And if someone else learns them and takes them, then we can prosecute them in our courts because that's against the law. Now, what's the problem? Well, the problem, what I figured out after thinking this through, is that it's actually quite fundamental and obvious. It's sort of elementary economics. If you live in a world where knowledge is the currency, there must be less of it. Why? Well, because no one will pay for something you can get for free. So in the Jeffersonian ideal world, everybody's a farmer, and they write letters to each other. They exchange information, but they, they charge you for corn. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the world we grew into, or have grown into increasingly, is where we have to have secrets. We're, we're a society of secrets because that's how you make your living. Making your living is not nice. Okay, we're not going to share with you. I'm only going to give you the thing if you pay for it. And I'm a, my measure of success is whether I can shoehorn a very large amount of money out of you for this thing. And, of course, the way economics works is that process isn't solid unless you really don't want to give me the money. Okay, right. So it's pain. So the, the amount of pain that you have to pay is a measure of how valuable the thing is that I'm giving you. So... In the information world, where information is your economy, there has to always be pain in exchange of information. There has to be money exchanged. There has to be something exchange. scarce. That it has to be to scarce. Make great value. Okay, and that means that strewing the world with enlightenment can't be. Also, so knowledge can't be free anymore. Not only that, but the sense of the law is that it's not just acquiring knowledge is if you go and acquire it yourself you are violating the law namely the, the, in some cases that is uh, this criminal act so it's not just just learning things it's it, it's stealing it's it's uh, okay yes so so learning things of technical value is theft and uh, that means that the whole idea of just learning stuff and bettering yourself um, from what you learn doesn't make any sense if the thing in question is valuable, which is to say if it's owned by someone else. And yet, and yet, that's a very interesting perspective. So, so let me give you a, 
a counterpoint writ large. I'm not going to go. We don't have time to go into the details. Um, I too worry a little bit uh, about the profusion, uh, expansion, and scope of, of patent law and intellectual property. I think we've made a mistake, or at least we've gone too far. But I'm open-minded about it. I might be wrong. I don't know. But what I notice is that in this world we live in where knowledge is hoarded, as you point out, is, sec is secretive and, and because only, as you say, only scarce knowledge is, is, has economic value. Uh, it's the only way I can charge for it. And yet I look around, and again, here we are at Stanford, where people are, are attending and acquiring, paying a, a great deal of money, bargain at twice the price, of course, but they're paying a great deal of money, some on other people's nickel, but a lot of people here are paying a lot of money to acquire knowledge that they presume is useful. The pace of innovation is, um, is pretty healthy. There's places where I wish it were healthier. Uh, obviously, we don't know what the alternative world would look like, but it's not like we live in a world where we're sort of stuck. So how would you answer those, 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 those points? The first one, I have a politically incorrect answer. But I'll tell you anyway, the business model of a man who a man who writes that doesn't care if you drive a hybrid, well, even if it's not his title, uh, is 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 certainly uh, immune to worries about. Well, I did I did put that in there because it's true. You know, everybody drives a Prius. It just takes it just takes uh, ten percent longer to use yeah. up all the oil. Go ahead. The business model of elite universities is not education. It's access to the peer group. Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. The actual education you get. Uh, is pretty generic, and if you were really diligent, you could open books and read it. Yeah, this is what true. What you're actually selling is access to other students and um, to um, the colleagues. And the, the, that's right. So it's basically a gateway to a gateway to certain things, and that's that's what you can charge for. You can't charge for knowledge. Uh, now, the pace of innovation um, does that hurt you? So we that's, found a way. You know, that's the way it is. I don't. Uh, I would prefer a world in which every, you know, the state would pay giant amounts of money to pay professors to strew knowledge and <laughs> enlightenment around to the people who need it. But that's not the world we live in. Yeah. Okay. So. so I make my way as I can, and uh, well, I'm talking uh, as uh, 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 contrarian as I as I possibly can. But in fact, there's a there's a simple idea here, which is that people who try to repeal the laws of economics fail. Yes, they do. Okay. The pace of innovation um, has increased. As far as I can tell, there is no objective evidence at all that the pace of in innovation has increased, at least technically. In fact, quite the opposite quite the opposite. The pace of innovation has actually decreased. And let me give you some very concrete examples. The, um, you probably have a little thumb drive, a little flash drive. This is the technology that destroyed the film industry. This technology is Japanese. It was based on something invented at in Intel called an EEPROM, which I worked on as a student. The problem was that EEPROMs couldn't be erased electrically. You needed a little ultraviolet light to do it. And a very famous engineer working for Toshiba 
who's now in Sendai, invented a way to do it. And one thing led to another, and uh, the film industry's gone. You're talking about uh, camera film. Yep, and other camera film's gone. Okay, it's a great world. I love the world, digital world. Uh, Another example. Another example is um, the blue diode. That's a famous one. Uh, When I went to school, we all learned that you couldn't make blue diodes because the energy gap of the the silicon wasn't big enough. And uh, and and anyway, if you tried to make other semiconductors, that they would have chemistry problems. And well, nobody told this this guy. Okay, so he just did it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Blue diode. Now we have now we have uh, blue LEDs all over the place. Uh, Why is that important, by the way? Why? Do, what, what's good about a blue diode? Um, it's a, it you know it's a technical detail. It, it allows you to replace incandescent lights with diodes, which you couldn't do before because they were too red. Okay. There are other reasons, but that's the big one. Okay. Uh, the, of course, the really famous example is the flat panel display, which was uh, an utterly brilliant Japanese invention. It isn't, wasn't based on anything new. What they invented was a process. It basically has a huge number of processing steps, and the, what you have to do is get the, the, the flow of your product through this processing so that you get a very tiny loss per step, so that by the time you finish all these steps, you, you, get a, you have a reasonable a yield of your product. So the invention was the process. Everybody, another thing, everybody said that you could do that, and uh, they just did. So now the, the cathode ray tube, which is our, our uh, television that we used to remember, they're gone. No one remembers what they, what they look like anymore. They just vanished off the face of the earth. There are uh, innovations in uh, automobiles uh, that you know about. Uh, you ask, you go down a list, where are the most innovative automobiles? Uh, you ask a kid on the street, they'll tell you they're in Japan or Germany, they're not in the USA. When I was, um, when I was uh, raising my kids, I, I did this experiment, I, I was trying to teach them things. I, my older son, he was a little boy, and I said, okay, here's the earth, show me where cars come from. And he turned the globe around and pointed to Nagoya. Okay. Now, uh, uh, there is a lot of software that happens. I mean, a beautiful example of American innovation would be the iPhone. Yeah, right? for sure. Okay. So uh, we're not dead. Okay. But what is true is that is in the hardcore stuff, the the capital of innovation is Japan, not America, and that's just the way it is. Now, uh, whether um, that will continue is anybody's guess. Uh, the, there are things going on in the Far East that are fascinating. Um, uh, Japan's ex-colonies, which means South Korea and Taiwan, are now doing to it what it did to us. Uh, the flat panel displays that you buy are not made in Japan, even though the invention comes from there. They're made mostly in those countries and now increasingly from mainland China. Almost all the flash memory uh, doesn't come from Korea anymore. It comes from China. The uh, cheap pots and pans that you used to find that are made in Korea are now made in China. Same goes with sure. the bicycles that I just bought. Uh, I just bought a bicycle down here that's made in China. Okay. So the um, textiles. Last time I was in North Korea, I mean North Carolina, there was um, 
discussion about the exodus of the textile industry and the making of innovations in textiles, but where are those innovations happening? Simcha. Uh, not in Raleigh. Yeah, right. Okay. Okay, um, I've made my point that the, the uh, innovations um, uh, is idea is partly untrue, and how much it's untrue, I, I have difficulty gauging. But why do I care if they're made in Japan or South Korea or Taiwan or instead of Raleigh? I get to use them. I mean, I'm glad. It's nice that Steve Jobs is an American, I, I suppose. I'd, if I like the iPhone, it came from an American, but if it had come from a Japanese and I get to use it, why would I care? This, well, I'll, all I can tell you is that the... the um, that this is playing out now, and I guess we'll see. Yeah, you know, an experiment is ten times better than any theory. So you just <laughs> you see. So maybe it's true that um, that you can do without all that manufacturing capability. I, I don't know. I guess we'll find out. However, this is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is innovation and how great American innovation is. And what I think is that American innovation is, in fact, not nearly as great as, we think as, the, as the proponents say it is, basically, be. because they're not telling the truth. Okay. Could be. Um, do you have five more minutes? Sure. Uh, yeah. let, I want to talk about your other book before we leave. Okay. And then maybe uh, another time we could talk about it more like, because uh, I just found out about it this morning. I hadn't, hadn't known about it. We have another book called, uh, so the book we've been talking about is The Crime of Reason. We'll put a link up to it. But the book I want to close on is A Different Universe, Reinventing Physics from the Bottom Down. And you suggest in that book, based on my summary reading of the summary, uh, that we ought to be taking a different path in our thinking about the universe and, and the physical world. Uh, and we ought to be looking more at emergence, which is a favorite topic of this program in the economic sphere. Uh, rather than reductionism. What do you mean by that? And where do you think we ought to be going? Well, I mean the same thing you do. There are, there are things that happen in systems that you, don't, that you don't manage because you don't understand them. That this should happen in economics or humans, human creations like government uh, is obvious. Everyone knows this. But what is not so obvious is that it happens at the most primitive levels of nature as well. The uh, call for a new way of thinking, of course, is slightly hype. You know, I don't, I don't uh, want to tell people how to think. I do have a real problem with ideologies, especially in science, because it's supposed to be expunged of them. And of course it isn't. No. Nope. No, tons, tons of ideologies. And one of them, one of those ideologies, turns out to be that you can understand all things by taking them apart. It's, it's, it's surprising for me as a physicist to be talking about this, but I discovered it uh, slowly over the course of time, working with very practical things like transistors and magnets and, and chemical reaction and so forth. The, um, the belief is, is easier for people to swallow than the facts. Um, of course, this is... Our well earlier, known to us from politics, but our earlier theme, yeah, absolutely it happens. In, it happens in science too, and so part of the impetus for writing this book is that I just had it. Um, I just had it uh, because I can see what we were talking about before. There are these industrial things that are happening that really matter. You know, they really matter, and now, and we're having, we're waving our hands about the theories of the universe and, and all things, and um, this is. Um, this is uh, an ideology problem that's run amok, that is, that is very 
detrimental to your well-being. Such a great insight, though, the way you phrased it, uh, because it's so human, and you see it in any child, an inquisitive child, wants to take things apart to get down to the basics, right? And that's the, what we've been doing in physics for how long now? Well, you've been doing it for, for, for a long time, but in fact, in real physics, you do both. Real physics, the first law of theoretical physics is never argue with the data. Now, it turns out that physics is really about law. It's not about reductionism, it's about law. It's about, it's about quantitative relationships among measurements that are always true. And law in physics seems a self-evident thing, if, at least if you're a Westerner, because we're it's, because it's a religious principle. There should be law, right? Uh, the lightning comes down from the sky, and that's the way it is. In fact, much of our uh, view of physical law, Newtonian law, is just that way. It actually has its roots in religious thinking. But there are other kinds of laws, things that are always true, that don't come, that don't just come from this guy. They're made. And the, my favorite example is rigidity. So here's this pen. You see it's rigid. And that's a law. Now, to, to prove to you that it's a law, let's imagine that you're up at 40,000 feet in an airplane eating peanuts. You know that the plane won't fly apart. Why? It's a law. Something you can stake your life on, and in fact you do every time you fly an airplane or ride in a car or a bus or anything else. Now, where does that law come from? Talking about the rigidity of matter. Matter, rigidity. Where does that law come from? Evidently, it's made of little smaller things. Which well, that's what you know. That's what they right? say. And then you say, "Well, I know why it's rigid. It's because it's made of little atoms." Well, of course, that's obviously absurd. But it's even worse than that. It's experimentally wrong because if you take a small bunch of atoms and do nanoscience on them to see what their properties are, you find they're not rigid. Yeah. There's something called quantum mechanics that makes them kind of squishy. Okay. So in fact, rigidity is a law of nature that is like the beauty of a pointillist painting. So it's like a painting of Monet. If you get up close to it, it's meaningless little dots. Okay, but as you as you go back and back and the system size gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it makes more and more sense and becomes more and more clear until it becomes perfect. So one of the origins of perfection in the physical world is organizational. There are other examples, of course. Uh, uh, in physics, we like primitive things, so we know the primitive examples. That's the simplest one, but the one I spent a lot of time invested, invested a lot of time in superconductivity, the ability of electric currents to flow perfectly. Same story. When you chop it down to a few, a few atoms to see how the superconductor works, you discover it doesn't work. Or something we call superfluidity in helium. Same story. It, it, uh, if you just get five or six helium atoms to see how, how, where this behavior came from, this amazing behavior, you find it's not there. It, it's an emergent law. The whole has properties that are not visible. Are not, they're, they're encrypted. That's right. It, it's, it comes from the parts, but it didn't have to have been. You could have used other parts, and the behavior would have been the same. This um, idea or behavior phenomenon uh, occurs a lot in physics. In fact, there's a fancy mathematical name for it, which we call universality. And uh, physicists, most of them, feel more comfortable mathematicizing the behavior than to think of it as a physical phenomenon. So you'll find people say, well, the reason this 
universal behavior occurs is because field theory says it so, because my mathematics says it should. Whereas, in fact, the reality is that mathematics works because it happened. Okay? All the errors in the equation vanished away because the behavior in question is universal. It doesn't depend on details. And so you can take the wrong equations and solve them and get the right answer. Well, that happens a lot, not just in tabletop science, but in the universe itself. So the so-called standard model of elementary particles, which is our understanding of the vacuum, um, has things in it that we talk about in reductionist terms, but are in fact emergent, like this famous Higgs boson, which is now under, uh, under investigation at CERN, that is like a sound wave. Okay? It's, it's a sort of collective motion of whatever this stuff is that's in the vacuum. In fact, the entire idea of the space as empty Newtonian nothingness is actually refuted by the body of experiment that we have, which, which shows that it's filled up with all this stuff. And the stuff is elastic, that's what gravity is, and uh, it, you can bonk things out of it, which is what making elementary particles is, and why it's as simple as it is at the scale of people, no one knows. You just have to postulate it. So you know for sure it's organizational, but, but and it's quantum mechanical organization like you have in a solid. But uh, what's, what's happening uh, microscopically, um, you can't tell. The, as you go up, as you go to take it apart, things get more complicated. They don't get simpler. And that's always what happens when you have something that's organized itself. When you try to find out its secrets, you find out way more than you want them to know. And it gets, it gets more complicated. And you don't need to know all that stuff. So anyway, it's very common, and the, the most primitive, so the, 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 the whole being bigger than the sum of the parts is, in fact, uh, common in nature. And one of the arguments that I made in this book, and it's the, the key thought-provoking thing, is that this is the origin of all law, not just some of it. In other words, our concept of the law just is, as a practical matter, is not compatible with experiment. Meaning? Meaning that all the physical laws that we know of are emergent. Every single one of them. Even the ones, the ones we worship as being the most microscopic of all. It turns out there's something underneath them. So that the experiments work only because we're approximating? No, it's because, the, because when you go, when you do the experiment slow and at long length scales, the the properties become universal, like rigidity. And then that's a law. And then the, the, the little pieces out of which it's made don't matter anymore for anything that you measure. They become invisible as far as your measurement goes, and so you can just, you can just postulate them away. It's a practical matter for, for the particular thing you're looking at, right. So the, the idea that law is something that's always true could be emergent, that's a little shocking people because, as I said, because of our cultural, our cultural traditions. So this particular book is actually about that. It's the origin of law in the natural world. And uh, that's, uh, a lot of people said, well, this is a totally radical uh, view of the world. And of course, it's not. It's simply um, a worldview that all of us use 
every day when we're dealing with real experiments. Everybody knows it's so. It's just we have a, um, well, it's not, the, it's not the language we use. It's interesting, talk about the cultural. Why do you say we have a cultural discomfort with that? Because I have lived and worked in parts of the world where the culture is different. And I've become very cognizant of the fact that your Judeo-Christian roots powerfully influence everything that happens in this country, in Europe, in Canada. It's, uh, you don't, people, people like to think of themselves as beyond all that stuff, sure. uh, but it ain't so. It's, it's spread in our bones. It's in, well, it's certainly, I don't know about your bones because your bones are, are physical, but, but certainly in the, in the culture you live in, the, what seems obvious to you, what seems right to you and so forth, has cultural roots that, that are very deep uh, and are religious. But that, we'll close on this because we're getting long, but the, that story you just told about the whole being greater than the sum of the parts, the universality of law, the inability to observe at a micro level the macro reality. Uh, you could flavor that with Judeo-Christian understanding, right? There's a, certain, there's a certain divinity to that, if you wanted to put it that way. There's a certain mis fundamental mystery there. Uh, sure you could. The, just, a little, just a little parenthetical remark here. The, our religious traditions are complicated. We think of them as <laughs> as Hebraic, okay? But they're not completely. There's a big chunk of them as Greek. Yeah, sure. And in them. particular, Greek Stoicism. And so the Greek traditions have atomism in them, and they have emergentism in them also. And what happened in the early Christian days is that those ideas got amalgamated with um, with with Jewish religion. And as a result, um, you're, you're right, we have little bits of that in our culture. The, uh, if you open up the Bible, you will find at the beginning there isn't any emergent anything. Okay? There's, no, it's top down. That's absolutely it's top down, and the, the law is what it is, and it has just this scary, fearsome thing that you normally think, right? if, you, if you don't obey the law, it will be extremely bad for you, so you better. Yeah. Okay? And, uh, and so um, that is different from let's have a committee meeting and make the law. <laughs> yeah. Different. And so both of those traditions are there uh, in, uh, in our, even in Christian culture there. Both of those traditions are there, but the deeper one is the more tough. You don't obey the law and, and uh, the lightning will come. Yeah. You know, but ironically, the oral law in, in, in Judaism is a committee came out of the Sanhedrin, which was a, a group of, of wise men who made the law real on earth, took control of it. Um, so I, I'm, it's interesting. You, you know, this is another conversation which we have another <laughs> time. But you know, I, 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 you can imagine that when I living in Asia for a long time, I thought very deeply about this because it's an inherently non-Christian place, and there it's a Confucian place, and there are just different ways of looking at things and. One of the key things I realized was the idea of the one correct thing is missing. So to a Western person, it makes perfect sense that there should be one correct thing, not two. Yeah. And if there's two, you, you get upset. You know, find out one of them, at least Which one of them the right must one. be wrong. Yeah. Yeah, right? Well, in Confucian cultures, that worldview is called monism. 
and it's pejorative. Uh -huh. It means that you're a child if you think that way. You're just making trouble. You want to have fights all the time. The, the key to peace is to have more than one truth. You have your truth, I have my truth, you know, your reality, my reality, and we just won't, we just won't fight. So uh, there isn't uh, one true thing, there are, there are many. Um, now, uh, this is not to say that one or the other is better, I'm just saying that it, for me as a Western yeah, person, I'm, I'm definitely a moralist when, in my science. You know, a thing, I mean, I, one thing I won't tolerate is wrongness. Uh, um, and so I, I, my, my Western roots are very, very deep. Um, so naturally, I see that as the worldview that's the best of all possible worldviews. But it isn't the only one. And uh, the thing that you realize is that the, the embodied the logos, which is what that idea is, is an invention when it comes to the application of it into the laws. It's not a self-evident way of living. It's, in fact, a way that was invented that, that makes certain things happen that are good. My guest today has been Robert Laughlin. Bob, thanks for being part of it. My pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.